0: The way we use transport systems to move about has been changing at pace for years. Against a backdrop of climate change, increasing urbanisation and shifting human behaviours, transport planners have more dynamic factors to consider than ever before. With limited space to accommodate everyone's needs, how can we effectively plan and build more sustainable, equitable transport networks? Hi, I'm Jill Hannaford, GHD's Global Future Communities Leader and host of What's Now? What's Next? A snackable podcast series exploring today's challenges and tomorrow's opportunities for our communities. And importantly, how we can support thriving places and spaces that put people first. I'm joined by Transport Market Leader for Tasmania and engineer Samantha Chapman, awarded the 2022 Tasmanian Young Professional of the Year by Engineers Australia. Samantha joins us from Hobart, and I'm also joined by David Hurran leader of GHD's UK transport team who is dialling in from London. So we're here today to have a conversation about uh, transport and mobility in particular. Uh, David, what's a common misconception about the role of transport that you'd really like to see changed?
1: Uh, that's a good question, Jill. Uh, good morning. Um, I think for me, when you say transport, most people I know... Immediately think about cars or buses or trains. But for me, transport's about movement and predominantly movement of people, but also goods and services. So if you think about transport in terms of movement, it just really changes the dynamic of how people approach it and different modes of moving people and goods.
0: And Samantha your perspective on this, you come from a very different part of uh, part of the world and you have um, a different range of experience to David. What's your perspective on the role of transport?
2: I see the role of transport as really being an enabler in society. I think I definitely agree with David's points around moving away from thinking just about car transport and, and throughput, but I also think there's another step in thinking about it more in terms of um, mobility and access, and what what the actual need is that someone needs to connect to, which brings transport more into that complex field of social and spatial um, environments that it sits in.
0: And we're probably talking a lot these days about inclusion and and uh, diversity of, of thought and types of um, community responses. Um, Sam, I'll come to you. How can transport respond to those views of the community when they're very different members of the community and everybody wants seemingly different things?
2: I think a really critical part of that is that there is – lot of space uh, within our networks. There is space for everything, but not every street uh, can perform every function. Uh, So from a practitioner perspective, what I like to look at is really looking at things at a holistic level rather than at the hyper-local sort of should this be a car park or a bicycle lane here? And there's a lot more consensus when we start engaging in a a values-based discussion.
0: Yeah, it's really, really important, I think, to get those community perspectives. But David, Samantha mentioned um, thinking of transport as an enabler. What's your take on the views of the community and catering for the variety of people within our populations?
1: I think Samantha's spot on in terms of let's move away from just thinking about infrastructure and what we're actually looking at and whether it's moving radial traffic or goods and services through an area or whether it's just permeability through a space and then how people wish to move and obviously there's all kinds of impairments on that whether it's the physical space or physical impairments of people and it's just trying to get the right blend of infrastructure and interventions to enable everyone to uh, feel comfortable and move through a space, uh, whether that's fire-powered mobility or walking and cycling, and just trying to get the balance and any particular space right to enable that is really important. And there's lots of differing um, designs coming out, and uh, we went through in the UK quite a big move to shared space in the early 2000s which is really not good news for um, visually impaired people, for example. So taking those lessons from what's gone wrong elsewhere and trying to bring them into other designs so that you can actually make everyone feel safe and secure and make movement easy uh, is exactly what we need to be doing when we're looking at how we design spaces.
0: Samantha, David's really touched on there something that I'm really interested to explore and that is around behaviours and attitudes towards different modes and different use of space. Um, how do you think that um, attitudinal change or behaviours really impacts the arrival of different transport modes and the decisions that um, governments and the like need to make about how we move around?
2: I think it's it's really challenging. It's Probably the simplest way to put it, um, particularly in Australia compared to um, over in the UK and and other regions of the world, we are very used to uh, certain luxuries around private vehicle travel um, and there's a huge um, understanding and education piece around people going on that journey of seeing the actual other benefits and freedoms that that are realised through travelling by modes that aren't necessarily private vehicle travel. Um, and, And that manifests in a lot of what we do in resistance against projects that change for new modes or new uses of space. But there's a real trend where although that initial resistance there if a project is delivered on that need basis and you get that user group up, they start to really see that benefit and see that that change was actually a really positive one.
0: Yeah, and David, have you got some examples from the UK that highlight that um, understanding once the change has occurred?
1: Oh yeah, I think um, has really hit the nail on the head there in terms of, you know, it's about engagement, isn't it? And if you talk to People and you, Jill, you know about our lovable um, thing within future communities. I'm a big believer of our lovable ethos, and people know what makes their space special. They know what works, they know what they like, they know what they want to keep. And so, you need to harness that and understand what people like about their space, and then try to explain the different options you can do within it. So, you know, a knee jerk might be, uh, particularly within London, where it's quite prescriptive in terms of how a road would look and feel. And um, actually say, well, do you know what? We, well, actually, we did a scheme in Brixton where we completely redesigned the streetscape, took a lot of traffic out because we didn't need it, and we could do that by automatic number plate recognition um, just so that any traffic that didn't need to be there was taken out of that road, which immediately changed the feel of the space. And then we started working with the local user groups and cycle groups um, about what we could do with the, the freed up space. And we originally started with a cycle lane just to give that dedicated space for cyclists to make them fill space. And the response we got was really surprising because the cyclists just turned around and said, well, if you've taken all this traffic out, we don't need a cycle lane. We feel safe. We feel comfortable. The road, you know, cycles can go on roads. We don't need dedicated infrastructure if it's a safe environment. Uh, and we could give all of that extra space to pedestrians and the shop fronts along the road for cafe space. So... It's surprising what you can do when you really get into that granularity of detail. And on another scheme, um, when we looked at the pedestrian flows and we used a bit of movement strategies data, and I'll come on to that a bit later, um, but actually where people are going to move, Transport for London, they like a footway, a road, a footway. And we built a case saying, well, actually, no one's actually going to use a northern footway. It's not on any kind of desire line. It's just wasted space. And we took Transport for London on that journey. And in the end, we managed to get a six metre footway right outside the development where everyone's going to congregate more Piazza space and shifted the whole carriageway north and took the northern footway away, which just was a much better use of space. But unless you either listen to what's right for that space, deal with the um, and engage with local community and or take the highway authorities on, um, you're never going to prove that case, and you do need good data to underpin any of our crazy ideas.
0: Yeah, look, I can imagine the the data piece is just absolutely critical to this. So, you've spoken about the movement data, um, the recognition of number plates. Um, Samantha, what what's your experience in how important the data that we have on movement of uh, people is to um, better transport planning?
2: I think data is is super important, but more important is is that it's the right data and that it's providing that understanding. Um, I think so often we think about transport projects in terms of, you know, how many cars or how many, um, you know, people are traversing a particular path. But some of the really um, innovative and emerging data sources that are actually looking at the purpose of the movement and that full end-to-end sort of trip. So that's where, um, you know, looking at number plate recognition, you can get where they start and end. And similarly, if we look at different things like spend data or cellular mobile phone data for people's journeys, we can start to understand a lot more about why they're moving um, rather than just where they're currently moving.
0: Yeah, look, and I think the why of movement is uh, is something we're going to fundamentally need to understand around the world um, as we do our planning for transport systems of the future. How do you see, David, the ways that we're working now, um, our hybrid working, which we we know is here to stay, how will that really impact on how we plan for movement of people in the future
1: it, it gives us all kinds of opportunities and i'll just come back to Saint samantha was saying about the validity of data which is really important transport data takes a long time to collect and validate and organize and during covid we in the uk brought in a lot of low traffic neighborhoods where we shut roads and there's always a lot of immediate opposition to that kind of thing because people perceive it as being barriers to them doing their A to B trips. And a lot of these schemes got hijacked via Facebook groups and bits and pieces, and local authorities didn't have any real qualitative data to be able to push back against these groups, and they came out. And with some of the movement strategies data we have, being able to give a, well, this is how people are moving by mode, via time, day by day, week by week, prior to the interventions, And this is what's happening now, and this is what's happening the day after, and this is week by week. So you've got live data to show how those travel patterns change. It really helps um, solidify views on whether the schemes have been successful or not. So I think that's the first thing that's really important. I think the second thing with changes to um, travel patterns, which we just don't know yet, but it's looking like there's a reduction, it means you can sweat your assets A lot more so if you're looking at a high uh, like a light tram scheme in a city and it comes back to my point of movement of people and goods if you've got a real peak to get people into the city and then it's quieter all other times why can't we use those tram assets to move goods around and put micro consolidation freight hubs in either end so that actually those trams that are running are carrying passengers at some point in the day when they really needed to be but then freight and goods and packages at other times, which helps take more and more traffic off the road, or even cargo bikes, which take space up, which frees up more space for people and active travel, which is a, you know really important for health and well-being and the environment. There's lots of opportunity we can do now.
0: Yeah, because of that change that that the pandemic has brought about for us, um, Samantha, what's your perspective on the way that? changing work patterns have impacted transport planning and the transport we'll need in the future.
2: I agree with what um, David has said there and I guess I'd like to expand on that point around the the pandemic and changing work patterns um, you know was unprecedented and had unprecedented effects in many fields and I think in transport what it really allowed was people to start to think really creatively about what our transport network function is and how different um, parts of society interact with that. Um, I know in Tasmania where I'm from, the we didn't have full lockdown periods per se, but the amount of traffic that was alleviated off the network um all of these congestion uh, you know news articles just disappeared and became invalid because people were moving differently moving at different times not moving at all um, and I think there's a real call in that to think about what access means and what the need for mobility is more holistically because access can be provided through transport definitely But there's also how we plan our land use and digital connectivity, such as um, what's been enabled from working from home, that can provide that same access. And if we're not consistently looking at how those three things um, and other means interact, then we will keep leaning on these infrastructure solutions that aren't necessarily needed um, and have broader impacts on both society and environment.
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting perspective in the the focus on um, why we're doing what we're doing and and what role infrastructure plays. And it brings me back, David, to a thought I've had around um, if we consider transport infrastructure projects in the context of ESG, um, the E in in the decarbonisation piece. But what about the S in ESG and the role that transport has to play in realising that? Yeah,
1: it's a a really good thought. Um, I think the movement to a blend of a lot more local living and working, as well as a bit of commuting, is really allowing us to reinvigorate our high streets and our local areas, underpin the local economy. And within the UK, for the last 10 years, we've been trying to move to something called 15-minute communities. And it's been somewhat successful, but... With the advent of these change of working patterns due to COVID, it's really allowed the 15-minute community to take place. And you can even see it in the planning developments now where before you would get a mixed-use development that was predominantly residential with maybe a shop or two. Now you're getting a lot more developments come through that will have shared cohab workspace and nurseries and bits and pieces that allows people to live and work locally when they want to but also provide connectivity to wider areas and I think that's the biggest winner in all of that which when you think about the economic and social that helps people on two levels there and environmental just removing those longer trips and allowing people to use active travel which is walking and cycling and, and even micro mobility like scooters and e-bikes is really going to be good for the environment so we're in a really good position to try and take advantage of what was essentially a really bad thing in terms of COVID but has affected us much for the better in terms of community.
0: So another thing I'm curious about is what your perspective is on the role that transport planning can play in a better and more accessible use of places and spaces.
2: Sam, can you give me your thoughts on that? It's, it's important to acknowledge the amount of our actual public space that, that transport occupies. Often it's up to 80% of our public space is road space, which is, is quite a significant part. So it's important to consider how um, you know transport can actually interact with, with place uses to make sure that we're getting best use of our um, public space for all. I think in terms of um, accessibility and inclusivity as well, there is a real positive shift in industry towards um, considering universal design when we think of transport. Not everyone has a driver's license and or are able to get a driver's license. I, I know where I am, I think it's it's less than 75% of the population has um, the ability to, to drive a private vehicle. And so when we look at our transport networks, we should be looking at ways that everyone can use because when we look at universal design and start to look at modes and ways of moving that, that are truly universal, then that's you know, 70% of the population that is able to still use private vehicle travel, these modes and means also suit them. Um, It just means that we're more broadly capturing that full population there.
0: So it's been really good chatting to you both today and hearing your perspectives. Uh, We started by thinking about um, some of those misconceptions about the role of transport uh, and how we can use transport to really influence and impact the type of places and spaces that we want to have. We've also talked a lot today about the changes in attitude and behaviour and what we can do with that information and data to make sure that we are really enabling uh, transport infrastructure to guide us to the places that we want to have in the future. When we think about the changes to the way we work, the role um, of how people move is absolutely fundamental to the design of not only the transport infrastructure, but to that inclusive uh, places and spaces that we're all seeking, ensuring that really nobody is left out of being able to move around and work in a modern urban environment you've been listening to david hurran and samantha chapman exploring the topic of mobility to hear and read more on their perspectives and explore other topics relevant to our future communities visit ghd.com forward slash now next i'm jill hannaford thanks for joining us